Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. We have a great show for you tonight, but first we have breaking news on this 14th day of January 2019. Boeing is set to debut its biggest airplane ever next month, the 777X has finally been paired with a gargantuan GE-9X engine that will propel its flight. The GE-9X engine is the biggest turbine engine in the world. It's roughly the size of the entire Boeing 737 fuselage. It was subjected to test flights last month with a single turbine hitched up to a 747 test bed. The engine includes a composite fan more than 11 feet in diameter tucked into a 14 and a half foot nacelle. It has 16 com- composite fan blades and hangs on a 777X 118 foot wing, which makes the new plane the largest two engine jet in the world. Though bigger engines can potentially mean higher fuel consumption and cost, Boeing's biggest aircraft is designed to mitigate those concerns. The larger wings will generate more lift decreasing fuel consumption by 20%, the company has said. Though the GE9X is the largest engine in the world, it isn't quite most powerful one. Another GE engine machine, the GE90, can claim that title as it previously hit 127,900 pounds of thrust in 2002. For all you mathematicians out there, that's 191,850 horsepower at 560 miles per hour. The GE9X comparison generates 105,000 pounds of thrust. The nearly finished plane is a culmination of over an extensive testing with the GE9X deployed in Winnipeg, Canada, and Pueblo, Ohio. Over 700 of the mass engines have been placed on order since last year as the jet nears its arrival at the airport nearest you. Norma Jean? The airline world has a new number two after United Continental Holdings, Inc. Aggressive domestic expansion pushed the carrier... Oh, this... Why do they do that? I'm sorry. (laughs) The page flipped. The... Push the carrier ahead of Delta Airlines 
in terms of passenger traffic. Our goal is not to be the biggest. We want to be the best. And as we implement our strategy, we are looking to hold on this momentum in 2019. United spokeswoman Megan McCarthy said in an email, American Airlines Group, Inc., which has yet to release its traffic for all of 2018, is expected to retain its title as the world's largest carrier. Carrie? You heard it here, folks. For many tipping... For many, tipping workers such as waitstaff, hairdressers, or taxi drivers is expected, but one airline is asking passengers to tip their individual flight attendants too. When passengers on budget carrier Frontier Airlines buy in-flight food or drinks, they'll now find a space on their payment tablet to leave a tip for the flight attendant that served them. This change was effective January 1st. Previously, any tips were pooled. Tipping flight attendants is uncommon, J.T. Genter of travel site The Point Guy tells CNNBC, make it. On a recent flight on Frontier, Frontier, Genter was surprised when he was prompted to tip on the digital tablet after purchasing a can of ginger ale. I've flown more than 350 flights on 51 different airlines in the past three years, but I've never experienced an airline ask for a tip, Genter says. Jerry? Jerry, Jerry, are you with us? Well, he would be if I'd open his microphone up. Jerry Frost, you got a new one. <laughs> okay, can you hear me, Neil? Yes, I can. can. Thanks, Jerry. Okay, I'll start over. Sao Paulo, the share price in Brazilian airplane manufacturer Embraer Sword Friday as markets reacted favorably to the country's president, Jair Bolsonaro, approving a merger with U.S. giant Boeing. The share price jumped 7.43% on the Sao Paulo, Paulo uh, stock exchange, despite Ibovespa falling 0.28%. It, it came a day after Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro announced he wouldn't be using his veto powers to block the merger between two of the world's three biggest aviation companies. Now, the $5.2 billion deal, which will see Boeing take control of Embraer's commercial airplane manufacturing business, 80% of its operations will go ahead. Embraer will only retain control of its military division. Embraer was founded as a state group in 1969 before being privatized in 1994, although the Brazilian government retained a golden share, giving it the right to veto strategic decisions for the company. George. The cockpit voice recorder from uh, the Lion Air jet that crashed last October has been recovered, Indonesian authorities said on Monday a discovery that could be critical to establishing why the brand-new plane fell out of the sky shortly after takeoff. The Boeing 737 MAX vanished from the radar about 13 minutes after taking off from Jakarta, slamming into the Java Sea moments after pilots had asked to return to the capital, killing all 189 people on board. 
Haryo Satmiko, deputy head of Indonesia's National Transportation Safety Committee, told AFP the box had been recovered early Monday morning. Investigators have already recovered the flight data recorder from the Boeing 737 MAX, which provided information about the speed, altitude, direction, and things of that nature of the plane before it plunged into the sea on October 29th. The preliminary crash report from Indonesia's Transport Safety Agency suggested that the pilots of Flight 610 struggled to control the plane's anti-stall system immediately before the crash. Investigators also found that the Lion Air jet should have been grounded over a recurrent technical problem before its fatal journey, but did not pinpoint a cause of or for the accident. The bright orange voice recorder was discovered about 10 meters from the plane's flight data recorder in 98 feet of water and purportedly under 26 feet of mud, said Iswato, the commander of the Navy's Lion Air Search and Rescue Task Force. The plane's flight data recorder showed that the pilots had repeatedly tried to correct its nose from pointing down, possibly after erroneous data from the angle of attack sensors was fed into a system that automatically adjusts the, uh, some of its movements. The final crash report is not likely to be filed until later this year. family and friends around the world. It's great having you with us. My name is Jim Hart, coming to you live from the beautiful West Palm Beach area, where the weather today was in the middle 70s. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we become Eastern Airlines International Radio Show. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with radio listeners from around the world during our broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk with us on the air live. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family, but to listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com 
forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visit. It's 213-816-1611. And by the way, tell your friends about us. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 398 Monday night broadcasts uh, and the 75 plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie and scrolling down to the archive of broadcasts. Each episode is briefly described. Nearly 500 episodes now. Wow! Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with your host, we ask that you please mute your phone as our producer does not have the ability of filtering out any background noise. Neil, would you call the role of our host so that they may check in individually? Thanks, Jim. Wow, we got them all over the east coast of uh, the country. Let's start up in New York. Uh, we've got uh, two there. Let's start with Mike uh, Scott. How are you, Mike? Tell us a little bit about where you are and what the weather is. Well, Mike would uh, gladly do that if I would open his microphone. <laughs> so, Mike Scott, once again, try it again, okay? Okay, it's Mike from Smithtown, uh, Long Island here in New York. So it's about a blustery 29 degrees in clear out tonight. Okay, uh, right close to you is George Jen, the famous author. Thanks yeah, for being right. with us, George. How is things there? And the weather here, which is uh, only about 15 miles from where Mike is, is exactly the same. <laughs> It's free. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let's move on down a little bit south. And uh, next, I think we'll probably wind up in Atlanta, Georgia. We have with us, uh, let's start with Carrie. Carrie Holder, how are you tonight? Hey, Neil. How are y'all? Doing fine. I open your microphone at least. <laughs> Well, here in Conyers, I don't know what the temperature is, but it's cold outside. <laughs> um, <laughs> take this. And um, everything's great here in Conyers. You know, Carrie, there's a song that they've banned. It's called Baby, It's Cold Outside. <laughs> <laughs> we can't sing that anymore, I don't think, and I can't uh. understand why. But... Uh, but at any rate, uh, let's see, uh, as close to you as your uh, roommate, uh, your husband, Jim Holder. Jim, let's see if I got your yeah. microphone. Okay, go ahead, Jim. Okay, I'm here, right to about 50 feet from Kerry, as she says, and it is cold, like she said, and it's overcast and sort of windy. Okay. Uh, all right, let's see. I'm going to move down to hmm, maybe the villages. We've got all sorts of people around central Florida. 
But we've got some uh, new residents that just checked in to the villages along with uh, Chuck. We'll get to Chuck in a minute, but let's say welcome back, Dorothy and Don. Good to have you back on the show. Hello, everyone. We're so happy to be back and glad that all of you joined us. And hello to everyone out there, and thanks for all your support and your help with Neil during this time that we were away. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we sure do. Hey, you did a good job moving. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. No more. Okay, Don. I, I, Don doesn't want to play anymore. <laughs> coach, coach, don't send me in anymore. Yeah, the next move I make is going to be through a EMS vehicle. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Okay. Uh, let's move over to, uh, let's see, Chuck. Chuck Albright in the villages. Yeah, I'm about five miles away from them. New neighbors, welcome to you. Thank you. It's about uh, it's about 70 degrees right now. Today was a really nice day, sun shining. Uh, the 53 golf courses that we have here were just packed full of snowbirds. They just love it this time of year. And uh, I had a good time uh, out and about, too, myself. And tomorrow um, I'm going to go out and do some... Um, team bowling and golf uh, a little bit later on. So eat your hearts out, you people in the cold weather. <laughs> okay. Well, and right close by is Norma Jean Borger. Norma Jean, hello. Hello. I had no idea the villages was that much warmer than the Gulf Coast. It is exactly 50, and I was freezing when I went out to check the thermometer a minute ago. Oh, wow. Well, let's It'll be Let's better in a warmer. couple of days. Let's get warmer and move on down back to Jim Hart in the West Palm Beach area. Jim, back to you. Yes, we had a beautiful day today. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law are visiting. Uh, they went over to the West Palm Beach Zoo, and uh, they've been to the to the uh, Lake Worth Beach and having a ball there. And I've been sitting home just waiting for my Veterans Administration operation tomorrow. The weather has just been beautiful here. 70 degrees, maybe a few degrees more than that. But, uh, hey, suffer you snowbirds that are still up north. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, We're ready to take off, Jim. Okay. Let's have Yeah, Neil, you forgot me. Oh, Jerry. Uh-oh. Oh, Jerry is our newest arrival about three weeks ago, right, Jerry? Three or four weeks, right? Yeah, I came kicking and screaming, but I, I've enjoying it. <laughs> anyway, All right, uh, well, I'm giving I'm you a, You're there and where. Okay, speaking to you from downtown Douglasville, Georgia, just... Uh, west of Atlanta, Georgia, and about an hour from the uh, holders over on the east side of Atlanta. Anyway, it's currently uh, 41 degrees here in Atlanta, cloudy, and we're expecting a low tonight of 30 degrees, which is Alaskan temperature to me here in in Georgia. So that's my report, Neil. Okay, Okay, I'm going to start writing names down. Go ahead, Jim. Thanks, Neil. 
for giving us a roundup on the host. I see we're number one for takeoff. So, Captain Neil, let's get flight number 398 in the air. song had I not forgotten to put it in. It uh, is the highest, High and the Mighty, uh, one of my favorite songs with John Wayne uh, starring in the movie. Great movie. George, would you start our program tonight? Sure. Thank you, Neil. Uh, Fate is the Hunter is a 1961 memoir by aviation writer Ernest K. Gann. It describes his years working as a pilot from the 1930s to the 1950s, starting at American Airlines in Douglas DC-2 and DC-3 aircraft, a time when civilian air transport was in its infancy, and then moving on to wartime flying in C-54s and C-87s and Lockheed Lodestars, and finally at Matson Navigation's short-term upstart airline and various post-World War II non-scheduled airlines in Douglas DC-4s. The plot of the fictional book, uh, The High and the Mighty, which Neil was just trying to whistle, also written by Gann, bears some resemblance to one of the true stories in Fate is the Hunter. For example, on a flight from Hawaii to Burbank, California, the stewardess complained of a vibration that was rattling the dishes and silverware at the rear of the plane. Gann inspected the tail compartment and noticed nothing was amiss. The vibration, however, was later traced to a missing elevator hinge bolt, which could have led to aerodynamic aerodynamic unporting and loss of control. However, since Gann was eager to begin his vacation the following day, he flew at a higher-than-expected airspeed, which in turn held the elevator in place. Another, Another novel by Gann, Island in the Sky, is also based on a true story told in Fate is the Hunter, the book was also made in, this book was also made into a movie of the same name. This brings us to, in my opinion, one of the best articles ever written in the retired Eastern Pilots Association magazine, The Repartee, by the late Captain Bill Malone. Chuck? 
The big, sleek Boeing 767 was knifing its way across the cold, clear Canadian sky. At the time, it was the newest and most sophisticated commercial aircraft in service. It could fly higher and more efficiently than any other older generation of jetliners. The long, white contrails followed it, gave evidence of the power of the two big Pratt & Whitney engine, fan engines. Suddenly, without warning, one of the contrails disappeared. Then the other. Both engines had quit. Incredibly, the aircraft was out of fuel, and it began its slow, fearful glide back to the ground. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Shamrock 1-2 Gulf. Engine failure. Climbing straight ahead. Stand by. Aviation is best to keep up with technology. Computers perform calculations and store information. That formerly was done in the most primitive way, namely manual means. Radio operators used to type a log of the conversation that took place with the aircraft in flight. Flight crews kept their logs of time over geographical checkpoints on the ground with the ground speed of the aircraft. Figured on a loop, circular slide rule invented by Eric Jepson, we call it Jepson computers. Fuel consumption was also figured on these little pocket computers, and fuel aboard was measured first on the ground by sticking the tank with a fuel measuring stick. This confirmed the reading on the fuel gauge in the uh, tile cockpit. Air traffic control centers were providing separation of aircraft aloft using times reported by the aircraft over the station, checking the flight crew's estimates with their own gypsum computers. Seat of the pants calculations also figured in, said Errol Youth. You knew you were heavy taking off from Atlanta in the DC-4 when you looked up at the water tank in College Park as you passed by. Even more primitive was the means of navigation. Just after World War II, they were still finding their way along the light line, a series of rotating light beacons on the ground, spaced along the airways. Each flashed an identifying signal with a white light, and the beacon at the airport, it was green. The O. Atticott radio range gave us an audio beam to fly when you could not see the beacon because of bad weather. Volume knobs of our aircraft radios were worn smooth from the constant adjustment of changing the volume. We paid close attention to bracketing the beams until the aircraft was over the station, indicating the cone of silence and the marker beacon over the instrument panels. Neil? With the advent of both the Boeing 757 flown by Eastern Airlines and later the Boeing 767, a completely new technology began. Easton's Virgil Tedder, who instructed on the Boeing 757 at both Eastern and ATA, that's American Transair, says the things he liked best about the airplane is that the pilots were involved in the design and a lot of thoughts went into its development. Among its other many attributes, he liked its incredible performance. It has so much power. It takes off with a pool load from small fields airports, such as Midway in Chicago, and stops quickly when landing. When a compromise was finally reached with Airline Pilots Association over the use of two-man crews in the cockpit, certain capabilities were required, among which was that the aircraft was to have a flight management system to monitor flight progress. We programmed navigational functions into the flight managed computer, 
which is even more accurate than the Omega system that uses radio pictures from ultra-low frequency stations around the world. All this is sort of like birds were talking to us. The flight management computer aligns itself to true north and the Earth's rotation so the pilot knows where he is at all times. We program the flight path into the inertial reference unit, which is a navigational device utilizing laser gyros rather than gimbal gyros employed in the inertial navigation system known as INS. It is a system used to navigate our spacecraft. It is a piece of equipment with incredible accuracy, so much so that built-in error processes preserve secrecy. Another innovation is the ability of the Boeing 757 and the 767 is automatically changing power. At the altitude where the changeover occurs from indicated airspeed to Mach, the aircraft computers handle the change in engine power. The airplane will level off its cruise and set the cruise power automatically. All the throttles will operate from takeoff through landing. Another innovation is that the instrumentation is by means of electronic flight instrument system, which presents the pilot with an image on the tube comprising the instrument panel in front of it. Electrically powered, it has a standby gyro operated by the ship's battery, as George Ginn and I have talked about recently. The pilot may select what he wants to see. Essential flight instruments are consolidated into a single latitude indicator, glide slope, flight director, instrument landing system, radio altimeter, and slope ice indicator all together. For redundancy, it includes three inertial reference unions, units, three instrument landing systems, and three autopilots. In the case of generator failure, engine failure, normal engine starting, or electrical overload, there's automatic shedding of electrical load. Uh, the electrical operated equipment turns off automatically. Sorry, I lost my place there, folks. The auxiliary power unit picks up the load when it is off. The same concept of automation is used for the pneumatic and air conditioning systems, allowing the pilots to concentrate their attention on flying the airplane. Although not high volume, electric hydraulic pumps are available as a backup for engine-driven hydraulic pumps. An alternate landing gear extension pump operates off direct current supplied by the battery. It opens the landing gear doors and the gear will free fall out and lock down. Landing flaps utilize an electric pump with power supplied by the auxiliary power unit. Virgil Tedder noted that there is a flip side to all this advanced technology. It is reversion, and NASA recognizes the problems. Pilots have difficulty transferring from the 757, which many of the functions are automatic, back to the 727. There comes a time when it is prudent for the pilots to disconnect all the automatic functions and fly manually. We've talked about that before. A case in point would be if air traffic control informed you that you want a collision course with another aircraft. The automatic functions of the flight management system would initiate the descent smoothly with passenger comfort as a primary consideration whereas an immediate response is required. The reversion factor, they think, may have played a role in the flight of the 767 over Canada as they found themselves out of fuel in a power-off glide headed for somewhere on the ground. Jerry? In his book, Fate is the Hunter, 
Ernest Gann regards life as a war, an undeclared war against the fate that hunts men down. There are many expressions which depict the fateful situations in which the aviator sometimes finds himself when there is no foreseeable way out. It could be said that one would have his back to the wall, be deep in the well, between a rock and a hard place, up the creek without a paddle, or up against it. To the aviator, he has nothing but the compass and the clock. How many of us have been down to the compass and the clock? Certainly Captain Olin King and his co-pilot, R.A. Kelly, found themselves in that situation in 1945 as they attempted a landing in bad weather at Florence, South Carolina, following some undisclosed emergency aloft. Fate dealt them a losing hand. Jimmy Goodwin recalls that the DC-3 crashed in a dense swamp about eight miles northwest of Florence. The fact that all bodies in the passenger cabin were crowded into the front, along with other evidence, indicated that a fire in the cabin might have caused the emergency. Fate was more benevolent earlier with Johnny Keitel. Keitel, a classmate of Charles Lindbergh at Brooks Field, as he was descending on instruments in the Pitcairn Mail Wing. He crashed on Stone Mountain near Atlanta. Johnny climbed out of the wreckage, collected his mail sack, walked down the mountain, and hitched a ride to the Atlanta airport where he obtained another plane and continued the flight. Johnny Keitel loved stunt flying and frequently put on a show just before landing with the mail. Fate claimed his life as he was demonstrating the snap roll in the little GB aircraft. The wing came off, and the airplane snap rolled continuously until it struck the ground. Fate was unkind to Captain Bill Coney and his co-pilot, Kenneth Willingham, as they were flying their DC-4 from New York to Miami in 1947. Jimmy Goodwin also remembers the details of their ill-fated flight near Port uh, Deposit, Maryland. A DC-3 with three members of a Civil Aeronautics Administration accident investigating team was overtaken by the faster DC-4. The weather was clear with unlimited visibility. Shortly after the DC-4 had passed, those in the CAA DC-3 observed the DC-4 go from level flight into a vertical dive. In the ensuing crash, 53 people lost their lives. It was the worst accident in U.S. aviation history at the time. Some speculated that the Gus lock might have actuated in flight, perhaps as a result of a prank, locking the controls, causing the aircraft to enter a climb. This would have prompted the pilot flying to roll the elevator trim tab forward, causing the aircraft to nose over into a dive when the Gus lock was disengaged. Even had this occurred, it would have seemed that the two pilots could have made a recovery. A more plausible explanation is contained in Ernest Gann's book, Fate as a Hunter, as he describes his experience in the DC-4 involving a phenomenon known as unporting. Unporting is the balanced destruction of the elevators by aerodynamic force. If enough separation between the fixed and the balanced portion of the elevators occurs, the aircraft will enter a vertical dive or even go beyond the vertical, and no two pilots would be strong enough to overcome the force. Gann had been on a DC-4 flight in which he experienced a strange vibration for which he and his crew were unable to explain. 
They did not reduce speed because of a previous experience of engine failure on all four engines when they throttled back, so they continued on their destination with the power remaining at cruise. For the next leg of the flight, they took an amount of fuel that brought their gross takeoff weight up to the same weight as the previous flight in which they had more passengers and flew at the same speed. The combination of weight and speed prevented the phenomenon of unporting from taking place. If GAN had not maintained the speed and taken the extra fuel, the aircraft would likely have entered a vertical dive. The whole elevator being loose had caused vibration. One of the hinge bolts securing the elevator was missing. Fate had dealt GAN a kinder hand than it had dealt Bill Coney and Kenneth Willingham. Dorothy. Fate was considerate, uh, considerate in 1934 when Captain Al Laney and co-pilot Francis Black encountered a fire in their DC-2 through a thought to be in the rear baggage compartment. Wisely, Al Laney selected a cotton patch and landed immediately with no casualties. Francis Black got off uh, a hurried emergency uh, message saying, we are landing, our tail is burning off. The operator on the ground thought he said, we are landing to take the mail off. <laughs> In 1946, de-icing equipment of the DC-3 was inadequate, inadequate to handle icing conditions that occurred along the Gulf Coast that winter, especially between Beaumont and Houston. Fate was uh, charitable to Captain Shelley Charles and your editor, Bill Malone, uh, as Shelley gave his, his, fi his finest performance of his flying career. He reached for all his previous experience in both airplanes and sailplanes to sustain flight with an incredible load of ice that accumulated over the whole the total ship. Climbing in search for warmer air in the uh, temperature inversion only produced additional ice to be already plundering uh, the ship. Added to the dilemma were the freezing controls. Shelley was able to free them by constantly moving the rudders, elevators, and ailerons. The landing in Houston was a masterpiece of skill, uh, of skill flying uh, as the ice-laden DC-3 wallowed up at the end of the runway. It was not without a price. When he arrived back in Atlanta, Shelley checked into a hospital with a hernia. It was also uh, thought that he carried maybe the airplane on his, on his back from Houston. This was a strong guy. You can mm -hmm. see that it was charitable in the case of Archie Connor, who was flying a Lockheed Electra over Tennessee in bad weather when the flight attendant came forward to tell him that the floor in the back of the passenger cabin was caving in and it felt hot to touch. The electrical buses began to transfer automatically back and forth as indicated in the overhead panel of the cockpit. Then suddenly the electrical power was lost. This has presented a dilemma of enormous proportions as most everything in the Electra operated electrically. There's no doubt 
and the fact that Archie Conner had nothing but the compass and the clock. Those of us who are familiar with the event have no doubt in our minds that he gave one of the most uh, famous demonstrations of flying skill known at the time as he completed the approach and a safe landing at Nashville. They discovered that a strap had come loose from the main electrical bus and fallen across another main bus, uh, creating an arcing, arcing that shortened out the entire electrical system. Then, of course, Archie Corner would have landed safely if possible. He soloed Lindbergh. George, George Bost won a war against fate when he took, uh, took off from LaGuardia Field in a Martin 404. <clears throat> Unknown to him and the pilots in the DC-4 that took off just ahead of him, a severe icing, uh, severe icing conditions had settled in over the area. All four engines on the DC-4 suddenly iced up and the airplane crashed on Rikers Island just north of the airport. George Bost was already airborne before the pilots in the DC-4 were able to report their encounter. The Martin 404 required the use of a device connected to uh, the BMEP, Brake Mean Effective Pressure Gauge, which caused the engine that falls below the, pres the preset power uh, output setting to go into auto-feather. One of George's engines auto-feathered, and the... Uh, and the power on the other engine dropped below 25%. Later, this, describing his ordeal, George Bose said, by this time, he says he was so deep in the well that he had his hand on the landing flap and he was preparing for a landing in Flushing, at that, Flushing Bay at that time. At the low power output, carburetor heat was not available. At last resort, he called upon his ingenuity in the use of the old air, air male pilot uh, day's trick to apply carburetor heat. He turned on the ignition, the ignition or the magneto switches on and, and back on, off and back on again, thus uh, running the, causing the engine to backfire and blow ice out the carburetor. The co-pilot reported the other engine had auto-feathered. George said, well, if you can see, if you can unfeather it, George told us later, he unfeathered it at takeoff power, but it sure sounded good. He he did not know whether the airplane would fly under the Whitestone Bridge or over under it or over it. He and his co-pilots succeeded in climbing out of the icing conditions and experienced an experience that they would never forget. Fate pointed its fickle finger at Chuck White, who managed to land his Lockheed Constellation safety on the side of a hill in North Salem, Connecticut, after encountering a mid-air collision. Fifty of his passengers survived, but when Chuck went back into the smoldering fuselage to try to free a soldier who was trapped, gasoline that had leaked from the wreckage exploded, killing both Chuck White and the soldier as he was trying to rescue them. Fate dealt another low blow to Curtis Fitz and Martin Calloway as they took off from Boston in their Lockheed Electra. They encountered a huge flock of birds, ingesting them into the engines. It was believed that the propellers of the two engines on the same side of the airplane went into a flat pitch, and the engines on the other side surged, causing them to lose control and crash into the bay. Miraculously, the two flight attendants in the rear of the passenger cabin, along with many of the passengers, escaped. 
Curtis Fitz and Martin Calloway were not so lucky. Fate continued. Uh, correction. Fate continued her game as Steve Parkinson came out of a thunderstorm between Washington and Baltimore and a DC-8 inverted. When asked how he knew he was upside down, it sounds like an interesting one to me, he replied through the <laughs> eyebrow windows he could see the cars driving down the freeway. Together, he and his co-pilot were able to write the airplane. <clears throat> Mel French was well aware of the danger of picking up too much speed in the DC-8. He had often said that the airplane was so clean and streamlined and that this could pose a problem. While he was absent from the cockpit using the restroom, they encountered turbulence. The DC-8 entered a vertical dive. Mel French climbed back into the cockpit, cockpit hand over hand and reversed all four engines. They lost two engines, but the aircraft slowed to the point they were able to pull out of the dive. Their encounter and a later incident... What happened here? A, a, late, a later incident... I don't know what's wrong with this thing. I'm sorry. Uh, electronics. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> oh, just a second. I'm getting there. Mel checked into the hospital. Wait a minute. Oh, he, he reversed it. Their encounter and a later incident over Lake Pontchartrain caused a whole new technique of flying and turbulence to be adopted industry-wide. Mel checked into the hospital so the FAA could not question him until he was prepared to answer. <laughs> you, could, you could say that fate smiled on Tom Mayberry the day he was hijacked to Cuba in his DC-9. Tom was so low on fuel, he literally landed on the fumes in the tanks. From then on, Tom said, fill her up. The only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. <laughs> Lee Hines was Amen. was less fortunate when the hijackers of his airplane shot and killed the Eastern Airlines agent in Houston, and Lee had to continue the flight under such duress. Carrie? The pilots of the Boeing 767 over Canada, who were completely out of fuel, were on their prolonged glide from 41,000 feet. In the book, Free Fall, by William Hoffer and Marilyn Mona Hoffer, they described in vivid detail what happened. The 767 utilized a computer known as the fuel quantity processor, which relayed information to the fuel gauges in the cockpit. There had been a previous failure of the fuel quantity processor. The gauge for the right tank was blank, but the reading on the left gauge was six point something. What the crew thought to be the left tank fuel gauge was merely indicating as a thermometer measuring the temperature of the fuel in the tanks and reporting it on the Celsius scale. However, on separate video monitors, the flight management computer had taken over for the blank fuel gauge, giving a concise summary of the fuel load. So, for the want of a nail, the shoe is lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse is lost. And for the want of a horse, the rider is lost. Unbeknown to pilots, there was an improper connection in the microprocessor's cold soldered joint. This caused a partial improper connection that was the first link in the bizarre set of events. 
If the joint was severed, no current would have passed across the channel in the fuel quantity processor, and the channel would have deactivated. Then the fuel quantity processor would have operated efficiently on the outer channel. In this case, the partial connection allowed a partial voltage to flow through, and this was just enough to default the system. Fueling was done using the drip sticks treasuring the level of fuel in the tanks. The flight dispatched requiring 22,300 kilograms of fuel. This particular aircraft's specifications consisted of a mix of metric and imperial numbers. Fuel quantity was calculated in kilograms, thrust in pounds. Even the mechanics had to have two sets of tools, one metric and one imperial, to service the aircraft. The Canadian government had brought pressure to bear to go to the metric system of measurement. Toronto prosecuted a butcher for selling his meat by the pound instead of by the kilogram. Instead of relying on the fuel gauges in the airplane, which were inoperative, the fueler had to use the gauges on his truck, which measures in liters, not kilograms. The fueler had to pump a specific volume of fuel to reach the desired weight. There was fuel remaining in the tanks from the previous flight. Weight of kerosene varies with temperature. The whole process became a Chinese fire drill. With the switch from three cockpit crew members to two, fuel calculations became the responsibility of maintenance. Maintenance was not trained in these calculations. They used the wrong conversion factor and the aircraft departed with insufficient fuel. The aircraft was now out of 41,000 feet in its power off glide. Passengers were briefed for an emergency landing and as it descended through 22,000 feet, air traffic control transmitted that they had lost contact with the ship's transponder. The flight crew in response describing the nature of the emergency and further stating that the flight was on emergency in instruments, made a mayday call. The flight crew was down to the compass and the clock. The air traffic controller was also in the same situation where he had to utilize the old primary radar to track the flight of the ill-fated airplane. They decided Here. to attempt a dead stick landing on an abandoned Royal Canadian Air Force field. Using a makeshift cardboard ruler, the controller kept the flight crew apprised of their distance from the abandoned runway. The absence of fuel offset the drag of the windmilling engines, so the descent profile used by all pilots in the jet remained virtually the same. The Air Traffic Control Center called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with a request for all available police and firefighting equipment. Then, with a final sweep on the radar screen, the aircraft descended below the reception level and the blip disappeared. Unbeknown to both the pilots and controllers, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club was having a race at the RCAF field, and their final straightaway was right down the runway the crew of the Boeing 767 had planned to use for their landing. Many spectators were present. All sorts of activities were taking place, including a vehicular scavenger hunt. A festive atmosphere prevailed. Tents and campers were alongside the runway. Barbecues were cooking on the grills. A Cessna 152 was overhead. Well, the final segment of their approach, the aircraft appeared 
to the flight crew to be high. So they lowered the landing gear using the alternate gear extension pump operating off the direct current supplied by the battery. The gear doors opened and the main gear dropped. The nose gear remained in the up position. Landing flaps and slats were unavailable since they could not start the auxiliary power unit. They were out of gas or kerosene. The pilot initiated a side slip to lose altitude. One can imagine what the reaction would be of those observing from the ground. A huge jet airliner approaching at a weird angle with no sound. As the aircraft touched down and the nose slid along the runway in a shower spark, everyone rushed to get out of the way. The aircraft plowed through the post of low metal guardrail erected along the center line of the runway and slid to a stop. In moments of great stress, bizarre events often occur. As the pilot, as the passengers began their emergency evacuation, the co-pilot reached up and deactivated the fuel control switches to prevent fire. There was no fuel left in the tanks to burn, of course. The captain set the parking brake, which was also unnecessary. Both pilots reached up and pulled the fire control switch. Then they switched off the battery. Thus, the end came to an experience that began only minutes before at an altitude of 41,000 feet in which the pilots found themselves down to the compass and the clock. Mike? The question was, who was to blame? A special independent board of inquiry, after hearing the testimony from over 120 witnesses, concluded that neither the pilots nor the mechanics were at fault. They cited a number of deficiencies in the airline procedures. The chairman of the board of inquiry added, quote, the consequences would have been disastrous had it not been for the flying ability of the captain and the valued assistance of his first officer, end quote. We at Eastern Airlines have not been without our own problems with fuel. Ralph Pitts departed San Juan from Miami in a Lockheed 1011 with, a minim- with minimum fuel. This was a standard procedure in good weather as, as fuel, the fuel was very expensive in Puerto Rico. The fact that the air traffic controllers issued instructions for a reverse course in his climb made the minimum fuel load close, while en route, one of the fuel gauges dropped to zero. This caused Ralph and his crew to wonder if the gauge had stuck or if the tank had not been properly fueled. So they made an unscheduled landing in Nassau. An inspection revealed that indeed the tank had not. It was not fueled properly. Upon hearing Ralph's experience, the editor never departed the te- in a 1011 without confirming the reading on the fuel gauges without having the sticks pulled. All of us, at one time or another, have been down to the, the compass and the clock. Whether it involves financial problems, illness, death, or a loved one, or a close call in an airplane. Being an aviator was a great help because the very nature of our profession demanded that we face our problems with courage, tenacity, and uncompromising strength of purpose. Flying as co-pilots with our pioneers, we learned the meaning of keeping a cool head or hang tough. Failure was not their vocabulary, no matter how harsh the circumstances. Ernest Gann recognized these qualities in the Eastern Airlines pilots and spoke highly of us 
in his book, Fate is the Hunter. These are some of the reasons why Eastern so influenced our lives. These are some of the reasons we are so proud to be members of Eastern Airlines family. Now, all commercial aircraft required to have these two instruments plus many others for flight. A compass and a clock are required instruments for all commercial aircraft. They are no-go items, meaning they must be uh, operational and maintenance checked before each flight. The compass calibrated requirements for small aircraft less than 12,500 pounds max takeoff weight can be uh, found in the Federal Air Regulations. The compass calibration requirements for larger aircraft more than 12,500 pounds max takeoff weight can also be found in the FARs. They are both similar in wording variation. A clock is required for IFR flights in the U.S., but any clock does not do. The clock should be mounted on the instrument panel. The clock needs to be positioned uh, such that you can see it easily as a part of your instrument scan. And the sweeps second hand needs to be there to make it easy from time to time individuals that are in whole that are not in whole minutes. We might add to Bill's article that all of us to some degree are influenced by the compass and the clock or direction and time. We have as our guest Captain George Jinn, an EAL radio show host who is better recognized by the books he has written. Final Destination Disaster, and Flying Too Close to the Sun. George has a new book out also that we would like to hear about, as it, too, fits right in with the compass and the clock. George, welcome back as our special guest. Thanks, Norma Jean. Well, the uh, just one correction. The the new book isn't out yet. It um, I'm still, you know, I can't keep my hands off it, and... Uh, It'll probably take another, I don't know, three months or so before it is out. Um, But it's calling, the the title I have on it is Living After Dying. And um, it. Fate was my hunter, and uh, I was in a uh, car wreck uh, up around by Fort Lauderdale in a rented automobile where I crashed into a, uh, a concrete bridge abutment at about 50 or 60 miles per hour and uh, was declared dead twice as a result of it. And um, as you probably, most of our listeners know, there have been a number of books that have been uh, written about near-death experiences. Uh, the latest that I've read, which was excellent, was entitled uh, Proof of Heaven by uh, Eben Alexander, M.D., he's a, a, a doctor, and its subtitle is A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. And uh, there, there have been many books that have been, not many, but <clears throat> quite a few books that have been written concerning near-death experiences, uh, and most of them describe what happened to the person when they experienced that. But I tried to to take a little bit of a different approach in the book that I'm doing uh, 
it, I also I do describe what happened to me, but then uh, take it on from there so that it can hopefully assist other people, you know, the majority of whom have never experienced or never gone through a near-death experience. So that's really, that's about all I have for it right now is it's not out yet. Um, I, I, you know, if anybody has any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them, you know. George, um, your book, uh, I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> uh, destination, Final Destination, Final Destination uh, okay. Disaster. That book also uh, about uh, the uh, flight uh, of an Eastern aircraft, what was it, 985 or 980? I forgot the uh, flight 980, yes. yes, 980. 980. And uh, a little background on that. Can you give us a little background on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, 980 was a... Uh, a regular scheduled Eastern flight from uh, Asuncion, Paraguay to La Paz, Bolivia on January 1st, 1985 that uh, crashed uh, on approach into La Paz. And it was the only uh, crash of a U.S. airliner that's never been investigated in a proper or timely manner. And um, the, the more I, you know, my, that book was precipitated by a meeting that uh, the late Skip Copeland and I had with uh, then-president, or, or I don't know if he was a chief CEO of Eastern at the time, uh, Frank Borman, the day prior to the when the airline was handed over to uh, Frank Lorenzo's Texas Air Corporation, which led to its ultimate destruction, where we offered him a deal that was worth approximately $2 billion over five years, and uh, he turned us down. And that included capitulation by the late Charlie Bryan, who was at the time the head of the IAM. And it would have not only saved the airline, it would have allowed it to prosper. And based upon what I have in the book is when otherwise irrational people, when otherwise rational people do irrational things, something much larger must be at stake. So I began at that meeting and worked backwards in the book to try to find out why our offer was turned down. And that's where it eventually led me back to was the Flight 980 crash. And it was um, fair to see that's what had precipitated what happened to our, our beloved airline. George, I think that's been the best received book uh, ever written about the Eastern Airlines, and uh, we still hear people making comments uh, about the book. And um, I was certainly hoping hoping that uh, a movie would be made. Still hoping about that, uh, uh, about that because I think uh, it would be a great topic for and, and show about, uh, uh, about that crash on Illimani. Uh, guest, I mean, uh, yeah, let's see. I've got my board is filled. Any comments? I'm going to open all the microphones now. Our uh, program is pretty much toward the end here. And any comments from all any of our listeners? Be happy to hear from you. Any of us? Any of you? <laughs> My neighbors have read it. 
and they are not airline people, and they were really uh, flabbergasted when they read my book that's on my coffee table, not my. Uh, I'm having microphone problems. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, uh, hear an machine any longer in George. I can't um, either. I'm having technical and, problems here, so we we, we better uh, yeah better uh, end our show at this point. So, I'm ready to close. Well, I just want a couple of announcements here. Uh, Dorothy, do you have anything about the website or any of the future shows real quickly? Well, we have some future shows January 21st. We have the Playmakers. That's going to be another one of our shows that will, I'm sure, prove to be great. Uh, We also have on the uh, follow-up of... um, from the Eastern Files on the 17th and on the 24th uh, begins the start of the EAL Time Radio Show with Captain Neil and Don Gagnon. Uh, on the 28th, we do have another program um, that's at eight o'clock and at seven o'clock in the evening on Monday. Uh, right now, I don't have that title, but I'm sure that Neil will do great with all of the the topics that he chooses. Uh, so also on the website, um, I have let everyone know that we do have another anonymous donor who's uh, willing to donate the Eastern Airlines carrier certificate for the uh, former New Eastern, also the Captain Eddie Vernon Rickenbacker 1995 commemorative stamp collection and the uh, Captain Eddie uh, commemorate uh, photo uh, of his signature in the short bio. Uh, that has been in the work. It is going to happen. The Miami History Museum has uh, uh, said that they will accept this donation, and it's in the process of being worked out now with filling in forms and things that have to be done uh, for preliminary work. Uh, once that's done, the donor will notify me, and again, it's anonymously. He does, they do wish to uh, be anonymous for this and not have their name spread all over the place. Uh, so it will happen. It's in the process, and as soon as I know anything further on it, I will put it on the website. It now is under the history section of the Eastern History with photos of the three items that are being donated uh, by this uh, company. So uh, please check the website out. Neil has done a great job of keeping everything all up to date while I was away for a month or so moving, and uh, we're happy that uh, you folks really enjoy the website and are using it because it's it has all the information that you need to know. And, of course, we're sad to hear about our closing, so whatever we can do to keep Eastern going as long as we can do so, uh, we'd be happy to do that. Back to you, Neil. Well, I'm uh, telling folks now that we're trying very hard to find the new uh, owner of the new Eastern, uh, Ken Woolley, uh, Woolley, I think his last name is. Right, Kenneth Woolley. And we're trying to get him to come on the air and tell us about the future plans of the new Eastern and their uh, destinations and where they're flying to, mostly 
uh, Central and South America. So we, uh, we're really hoping, just like we did in the past, got Ed Weagle to be on our show and tell us about um, when uh, they first started the New Eastern uh, Airlines group. And uh, hopefully we can get Ken to come on and tell us a little bit about the plans for the newest of the Eastern uh, well, I noticed on Facebook that they do have a lot of uh, uh, planes that are being sighted all over the place. Yeah, they show different they ones and different airports. So yeah. they certainly are working, uh, you know, adamantly trying to keep up with all of the new things that they need to do, and hopefully it will be successful. So it will be great to have Kenneth Wolf. Captain, as usual, be sure to tune in Monday, January 21, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyber waves, and we take a look at the plane makers. That's our show for tonight, folks. For this, we take a line from the stories of Lake Will Be Gone. Where all the Eastern women are unequal, all the Eastern flight attendants are above airline standards, all the men are good looking, and all the Eastern children and Eastern grandchildren are way above average. So until then, we'll say, night, Eastern family. Have a very happy new year. We love you, Eastern. Yeah, we love you, Eastern. We love, we you, love you, Eastern. Happy New happy Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.